Bowl. And we had this thing called the Hobbit Hole Dundies, right? Like this, this award ceremony, we, we, we kind of gussied up, we dressed nice, we went to a super fancy restaurant, you know, like Texas Roadhouse. We got big old steaks, we were getting the cactus flower, everything's great, and we start giving out these awards. And I won a few, right? Well, there was like 50 of them, there's like five roommates, so it's like, you know, had to win some, right? Some of the awards I won that were like not notable was biggest thief in the house, and most likely to marry out of poverty. Um, which is actually true. Uh, so that's great. But the one that I pride myself the most in, and this is kind of how we would say it, we would say, the Hobbit Hole Dundies proudly presents, breast, best bread boy. First time on stage, it happens. Zach Rao. All right. Okay, and so, if you know anything about me, that award makes a lot of sense, because if you knew who Micah Bang was, he would like watch hours of Combine videos last year. And I'm not talking like NFL Combine videos, I'm talking like tractor combines, like farming. And he would just watch them for hours. But like Micah watched a lot of videos on farming and was really enthralled with that, I watched a lot of videos on how to make bread, like sourdough or whatever. My wife actually still makes better bread than I do. She's a gifted baker. When I was a toddler, this is funny, I was like two or three, maybe four years old, and this is what I would do in the morning. Little Zach wakes up in the morning, he, you know, toddles over to the kitchen, and, he, and he, grabs the, he grabs a loaf of bread and he goes to his parents' room and what does he do? He lifts, he lifts the bread up and he starts hitting his mom with it. And he says, toast, mommy, toast. And that's what I did. I loved bread, I loved toast. That's what gets me going. <laughs> and so Jesus, he's talking about bread tonight, guys. And I'm really excited about it because, because what he's going to say is actually way more profound than what I'm saying right now. So go ahead and open your Bibles to John 6, 22. That's where we're going to start today. As you're, by the way, I hope you know me a little bit better now. <laughs> go ahead and flip to your Bibles. And as you're doing that, open your phones, whatever. I just want to fill you in on a little bit of background on what's going on here, where we're at. At this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus, he's going around, he's doing miracles, he's healing people, he's announcing that the kingdom of God has actually arrived, all this stuff. And he, like just before we're about to read, he feeds 5,000 people. And not only does he feed 5,000 people, he, fi he feeds 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. And the people are loving it. Like, hey, we heard Jesus talk about some stuff. It was fun. I got some free food. And so they wake up the next day and they're like, where is he? Let's go find him. So verse 22, it starts like this. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in the boats. They went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And this is interesting to me, because it looks like there's people that see Jesus do something really amazing, really spectacular, and they want to see more of him. And they're like, get all their friends around, they're like, let's go get this bread, right? 
I'm really glad that one landed. <laughs> they want to go see who Jesus is, and he, like, as soon as they get to him, he stops them right in their tracks and says, hey, I actually know why you're here. I actually know that you actually don't want me. You don't want to know me. You just want some bread. And that seems silly to us because we live here in 2019. It's America, right? It's like, what do you do if you want bread? Well, you go to the, well, if you're me, you get your wife to make it for you. But most of us would just go to the store and buy it, right? Like, it's, what's this big deal about bread? And that's because bread doesn't have the same amount of significance that it used to have, right? In Roman times, bread was all you ate. Like, you would eat meat when you could afford it. It's like what you lived for. It's what you worked for. It's how you provided for your family, and like on and on it goes. In fact, like the Roman government, the way that they did welfare back in the day is that they wouldn't give people some money to go and buy foods. They would just give them loaves of bread. And so bread meant everything to you. And it strikes me odd, like I said, because... (laughs) These people are looking at Jesus and they're saying like, hey, it looks, it looks like you can provide for me. It looks like you can give me something that I can't actually give. And he seems to dismiss that. He doesn't seem to care about the fact that these people are hungry and coming to him for food. And that's like a temptation we have to believe about this text is that it seems like Jesus doesn't really care in the way that he's responding, it seems to be unorthodox or unusual. And this is how he rebukes them in verse 27. I'm going to skip down a little bit. He says, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And he answered them, this is the work of God. You believe in him who he has sent. And this is a little bit confusing because we're like, okay, where are we at? Like, I thought we were talking about bread. Now he's talking about eternal life. Like, how, how are we feeling about this? And if it seems like Jesus is dismissing, like, a need that we have, a need for food, a need for, like, sustenance to continue living, and he's actually dismissing that and he talks about this, we have to trust that it is actually because it's more important. Okay. We actually have to believe that Jesus is, is actually not dismissing them, but he's actually trying to get them to see things from like a correct perspective. In other words, these people, when they hear about the bread of life, they immediately say, what is the work of God? Like, how do we do that? Like, how do we work for God so we can get more bread is basically their, their question because they're hungry right? Like this, this discussion, it keeps growing in intensity and people are wondering like, hey, if you're saying that there's food that never perishes, then prove it. Like we've seen God provide for our ancestors with bread from heaven. Like where's your miracle? And I read that and I'm like, okay, did you forget what happened yesterday? Like you, you had a full meal, you were sitting on the grass with 5,000 other people, five loaves of bread. And did you forget? And I think that's like a logical explanation for us, but if I put myself in their shoes, what's my life like? It's a new day and I'm hungry. It's a new day and I'm hungry. The bread that they ate yesterday, it actually isn't really relevant anymore, right? Like because the bread that they ate yesterday was only enough for yesterday and today is today and they're hungry. It can't be satisfying anymore because they already ate all of it and there's nothing more to have. They're hungry. 
think about it like this in today's term. It's like, what did you do yesterday? Or like, what did you do last week? Right? Did you have an exam? Did you get some homework done? Did you go to C group? Did you go to the bars? Like, did you eat some food, drink some coffee? Like, what happened? Did you plan your Thanksgiving trip? Like, what, what, what about the things we don't really want to talk about? It's like, did we go a little bit too far with him or her? Did we go to that website that we swore we would never go to again? It's like, the question is, why are we even here? Because what my guess is, the reason why you guys are here is either A, someone picked you up in their car and you just walked in. Welcome, by the way. Or you're finding out that the things that you did this week actually didn't satisfy you. And that the things that you did this week didn't actually fulfill your life in the way that they're supposed to. The test score, right, it only matters until the next test. The homework is always needing to be done. What about the bars? Like you wake up this morning and you feel worse than you did last night and there's less cash in your pocket now. Like the things that make up our lives, like it's just exhausting, isn't it? Like we have school, we have work, we have homework, exams, family issues, doctor's appointments, rent to pay, and like all that is supposed to come together and it goes on and on. And we need to come here and we need to ask this question, what is Christianity, right? And what I mean by that is like, is Christianity just another way to find success or meaning in this life or is it something completely different? Is Christianity just another competition to win, a mountain to climb? And what makes it any better than the things that we already fill our lives with? Because this life, if you're pessimistic like me, it seems to be a life of diminishing returns. And what I mean by that is that it seems so often that the more we give, the less we get. The more we indulge in something is actually less satisfying, like the less satisfying it becomes. And so like an example of that is like, uh, how do you study for a test, right? If you study for 30 minutes, you might get a C, a B if you're smart. Okay, what if you study for two hours? Okay, you might get that C up to a B. If you study for four or eight hours, you might get that A minus. If you study for 10 hours, 15 hours, then you might get that A plus that you want so badly, right? Like there's not a linear like a alignment to how much you study versus how good your grade is. Like it, you need more and you need more and you need more to actually reach the next level. The things that we dig into to find joy and happiness leave us feeling just a little bit more empty every time, don't they? In other words, what makes believing God and who he sends any different with anything else that we do with our lives? Because the way that Jesus is talking about himself, it doesn't really seem to fit a religious identity. And what I mean by that is everything else that's in your life right now, it actually demands your excellence and your very best to work out for you. Right? Like you won't get the grades unless you try really hard for them. You won't get the job unless you get this internship and you interview this way and you have these sorts of student org accolades or whatever it means. If you don't work hard enough, you're not going to get what you want in this life. If you don't treat him or her in a particular way, you could lose them, right? And so often we, and specifically me, like we can be tempted to think about Jesus the same way. But when Jesus is talking about a bread that doesn't perish, we actually need to stop and think about what that means. And this is what I don't think it means. I don't think Jesus is getting at, hey, I have this thing for you that you can throw on the shelf and just kind of forget about until you really need it. Like it's like a, 
a backstop or like a last ditch effort, like, oh no, I don't have anything to eat. I guess I'll just uh, use this thing that, that Jesus gave me, right? When I think about a food that doesn't perish, guys, what I think of is a food or bread that when I eat it, I actually won't be hungry anymore. Like a bread that satisfies me so much so that I actually don't actually need to eat again. And Jesus begins pointing people in that direction. Like this bread that he's offering, the satisfaction that it gives you, it doesn't last just a day. He's claiming that it lasts forever. And the people, they hear this and they say in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. Right? And it it sounds like they're agreeing with him. Like I can just imagine them saying like, yes, give us this bread. I'm tired of being hungry. I'm tired of working. And they like seem to understand what Jesus is saying, but they actually, they actually don't. And the reason why is because Jesus's response in this next few verses is actually one of the most offensive statements they could have ever heard. And because of that, I think it's actually way more offensive to us than we might think it would be. Jesus replies in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Guys, Jesus is making a really radical statement by saying that. What he's actually communicating in this moment is that this bread or whatever this thing is that he's actually offering us, like the thing that will satisfy us is actually not our GPA, is actually not our internships. It's not the beer you drink or the sex you have, the relationship you want or the attention you crave or the adventure that you're longing to go on. Jesus is claiming that the only thing that actually fills that gap in your life is himself. The only thing that fills the exhaustion of day-to-day life, the emptiness inside of us is actually just him. And it's actually not even religion that can help you, right? Like, you cannot become a good enough person to be satisfied. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't work hard enough to be satisfied. And I was thinking about this idea, and my wife and I, we had started watching this docu-series about Bill Gates on Netflix. And we all know Bill Gates. He's the second richest man on planet Earth. He has $106 billion to his name, And what's crazy about this documentary is actually not how much money he has. It's how much money he has and how dissatisfied he is with the world that he looks around. Right, like this documentary is kind of like focusing on what he's doing after Microsoft and it becomes abundantly clear that this world around him is messed up and that he needs to do something about it. That there's something, even though he can live in any lifestyle that he wants, he looks around the world and he sees other people that can't and he sees that as an issue. There's like a, he's trying to fix sanitation in third world countries so babies stop dying by the millions, right? And 
the question is, okay, let's say he actually does it. Like, Bill Gates conquers sanitation issues in the third world. Babies stop dying of sickness. Like, life is good, right? But is it? Like, isn't there always just, like, a new thing to conquer, a new disease to cure, a new foundation to start? And on and on he can go until he dies, right? You cannot work your life to a point of satisfaction. It's not possible. Only the Son of God, only Jesus Christ, can actually give you contentment in this world that actually lasts forever. That's what he's saying. And the reason why this is offensive to the Jews and it should be offensive to us is because it pushes against everything that we believe in as humans fundamentally. Things like working hard, being excellent, being someone who makes a difference, or some, being different than other people. Like that actually doesn't matter as much as it matters that we just loosen the grip on our lives and we surrender the control that we want and we seek for so much and we just give it to him. Going back to the Jews, right? Like they... They start grumbling, they start complaining, and you can, you like, this is what they're, they're thinking. Like, you think you can actually satisfy me? Like, Jesus, you think that you can give me life forever? Like, I know who your mom and dad are. In my mind, that's like modern vernacular for like, my dad's stronger than your dad, right? How can he say, I came down from heaven, I know Joseph is his father? And the context in the midst of all of this discussion and debate is that this is all happening around a very particular Jewish holiday called Passover, okay? I'm going to go through a really rudimentary, just quick and dirty of the Passover, okay? So strap in, we're going to go. This is what the Passover festival was. It's a celebration of the time that God rescued the people from the country that would become Israel, and the finale of that rescue mission is the actual day that the Jews left Egypt. Okay, have I lost everyone yet? Great. <laughs> okay, so at this point, Jews have been enslaved for 400 years, and this is how God frees them. He commands all the people to kill a lamb, take its blood, and put it over their doorpost. Okay, that night, an angel comes down from heaven and kills literally every firstborn son of every family that did not have the blood on their, on their doorstep. Because the, the action was supposed to be prompted by a belief that God actually was who he said he was and that he was actually going to do what he said he would do. It's, a, it's an act of declaration of what they believed in or didn't believe in. Right? And when this happened, when Pharaoh's looking at his, at his entire country and there's death everywhere, he actually just kicks the Jews out of Egypt. And they didn't actually have enough time to put yeast or leaven in the bread. That's the thing that makes it puffy and delicious because the process takes like a few hours for the, the stuff to ferment. Anyway, they just had to bake the bread before they left. Like they didn't have time to wait. And then after they leave Egypt, they eat through all their bread and they eat through all their bread and they eat through all their bread and eventually they run out. And that's when God has to provide for them. And he sends down bread from heaven called manna. Okay. That's a, that's a quick and dirty of the Passover. Go read about it in Exodus. It's a great thing. It's basically, guys, it's a celebration of the time when the Israelites could not make food for themselves and they relied on God who gave them food, okay? They ran out of Egypt. They had a massive desert around them that they wandered around for 40 years and they had nothing to make food with or to even cook it with. But God provided for them. They had no means to satisfy their hunger, but God in his mercy satisfied their hunger, okay? 
And so when Jesus says, hey, that isn't true bread from heaven, it makes them angry. And I think it should. Because this was obviously God's provision. What do you mean that it's not true bread from heaven? How can you say that? And this is his response in verse 49. Jesus says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. That, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, I just want to pause for a second. I don't do like slides and stuff like Mikey and Ryan because I think they used them too much the past week, so I thought I would just not use them. If Jesus is trying to spend so much time differentiating between what real bread is and what fake bread is, we have to stop and ask ourselves, what are we eating? What are we eating? We've all heard the saying, you are what you eat, right? Like it makes sense. The argument kind of holds up. You can make accurate assumptions about a, someone and their health by what they eat. You can tell that by putting good things in your body, it will lead to a healthier lifestyle. Similarly, you can tell that I probably eat a lot more bread than Mikey does, right? It's true. You are what you eat. Or you can think about it like what you eat will determine the kind of person that you are. Okay, what you eat will determine the kind of person that you are. And this got me thinking about why it's so appealing, right, to like post pictures of what we're eating on Instagram. You know, it's like, man, I want people to know what I'm eating because like I got the cactus flower today. I'm feeling schmancy. I got the steak. If it's something enviable, I want people to know that, I, that it's mine. I ate that steak and it was delicious. But what about the food that we actually don't want anyone to know that we eat? Like I'm picturing me in high school, and this is what I did every weekend, okay? Full disclosure, I would get off work, I would go to my best friend Seth's house, and the first thing we would do is we would go into his Nissan Sentra, we'd go to Hy-Vee, we would buy two 12-packs of Little Debbie oatmeal cream pies, and like six to eight liters of Dr. Pepper, half and half, regular half cherry, you know? That's not something you post on Instagram, guys or your resume. <laughs> That's not something I want other people to know. And I'm not just talking about food, right? Like, I want you to think about this idea of consuming. Like, what are you consuming? It's more than just with your mouth. What are you consuming with your eyes? What are you consuming with your ears? In other words, what are you filling yourself up with? What are you filling yourself up with? What are you putting into your life? And this is why it matters, guys, because what, what you consume, it's not just what you eat. Like, what you consume consumes you. And this, this is what I mean like that. How, how many people like The Office here? Okay, good. How many of you have seen The Office more than three times all the way through? 
Okay, how about five? Okay, how about 30? Okay, maybe Sam Bruxford, great. Do you see what I'm saying? The natural tendency when you get home is to turn on your TV and turn on the office because that's where you're used to consuming, right? We, we, are, we, we program ourselves, you know, and maybe we don't even like the office. You could be like me, oof, not good. What about your YouTube usage? Like, what do you watch on YouTube? What do you consume? What are those things that you watch for the first time? And how much easier is it to, like, consume the second time or the third time, the 30th time? What are you filling your life with? How much harder is it not to have sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend if you already have? How much harder is it to put down the alcohol after you've already had it before and you've overindulged? How much harder is it to flunk that test after you've already gotten an A? What we put into our lives, it becomes a part of our lives. It consumes us. It becomes the normal everyday aspect of our lives. We become so entrenched in it and we aren't even aware of it. This studying is just how I do life. But as we forget that it's, it's actually, it, it actually could be the selfish desire to like be better than other people or at least prove why you belong in that classroom. The religion and why you come here might actually be because you want to work hard to be a good person so you don't have to feel like a bad person. The alcohol, it might just be for fun, but it might actually just be an escape because you look at how messed up your life is and you don't know how to handle it. It's interesting because we all want to tell other people about the new exciting things in our lives, don't we? Because we want to be seen as like new and exciting and unique and the kind of vacations that I go on, like they should be the kind of vacations that you want to go on. And like the way that I had my wedding should be the way that you would want to have your wedding. The way that I do my relationship should be the way that other people would want to do their relationship, right? And I'm just going to park here for a little bit, guys. But I think all of those things actually just relate to sin itself or a byproduct of sin. And I don't want to like beat your head with like, this idea of like, stop doing bad things, stop doing the wrong thing, you should know better. But I think we can all actually come to the agreement that the world's not the way it's supposed to be. And if I may go a step further, I would say that even we aren't the way we're supposed to be. It's a flaw, it's a defect in our world and inside of us, it makes, that's the thing that actually makes your satisfaction imp impossible to attain. The sin that's in your life, that's around your life, is actually what makes your satisfaction impossible to get. We even may try to do good things, help the poor, give our money and our time to help people in need. But even then, there's like parts of us that wanna say, yeah, I did that, I'm a good person, I'm feeling good. Can we just drop the act? I don't know why all of you are here tonight. I don't know the specific reasons, but what I do know is that your lives probably aren't as good as they seem on your Snapchat or on your Instagram. We all want to be filled with something. Some of us just want to feel something for once. We want anything to get us out of the normal mundane life that we're living.
And let's say you're here and you're listening to all of this and you're actually not the person with like the rosy Instagram or the friends or the status that a lot of other people in this room have. Maybe you're coming in and you feel like your life actually doesn't have meaning and you struggle to get out of bed every day and the grind just seems too much. Your life isn't consistent of trying to tell other people how good it is, it's actually to escape how bad it is. Because if people truly knew you, they actually wouldn't want to be near you. You're not here to make a name for yourself, but you're actually here with a name that you wish you never had. And if that's you tonight, welcome. This is a good place to be because Jesus is actually offering you the very same thing that he's offering everyone else in this room. In the midst of all of this, Jesus, and the way he frames it, he like references the fathers in the wilderness, right? The eight manna and they died. And in the same way, we can look at our parents like as, as markers, right? Like, are they actually any less hungry than we are? Is their life actually any more satisfying? Like, was the corporate life of financial success actually so fulfilling? Was the religion, the good reputation that they had in their town filling them up? Was it satisfying? Did the way they live in college matter? And Jesus, in this moment, he's claiming to be the food that satisfies. And like in verse 52, I'm skipping down a big portion, the Jews, they're asking how. What makes Jesus so special? What makes him so satisfying when nothing else in this world seems to be? Because Jesus, in that moment, he's claiming to be something far more than just a guy with wisdom or knowledge. He's claiming to be something that's actually so absurd and so insane that he could only be lying insane or actually right. Jesus, in this moment, he's claiming to be the very God, the very God that's been present before the world was even made. He's claiming to be the only possible thing that can satisfy you. He's claiming to be a God that looks at the dissatisfaction in the sin in our world and takes it on himself for your sake. How can that be? Well, let's think about this. This is the way I'm, I'm kind of framing it. I'm saying food, food that perishes is actually food that doesn't satisfy. Okay, food that perishes is not food that satisfies. Food that satisfies actually never perishes. Food that satisfies never perishes. The only way Jesus can claim to be actually satisfying and actually be right is only if he's the source of life itself. What are you eating? In 53, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, they have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. For those of you that come to like salt every week or fairly often, or you're here because it's like a, an obligation that you signed up for, why do you actually come? Like, is it because of the music? 
Is it because of the friends that are here? Are you here to listen to me? I hope not. (laughs) Don't settle for that. Don't set your sights so low on things that are just happening here. Everything that I just said will actually perish. It will go away. It won't last forever. It won't last. But there is a God that's claiming to be the bread of life. And the only way to partake in that life is to actually eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that sounds a little unnerving because I think most of us in here like aren't cannibals, right? (laughs) Jesus Christ is saying that he would satisfy you, but only if you consume him. Because what he was actually doing on that cross is he was consuming the sin of this world. He was talking about your sin. He's talking about my sin. And he consumed it. He ate it up. He swallowed it fully. And he died because of it. He was nailed to a cross so that he would take your emptiness on himself and give you his fullness in new life. And this is the gift that we Christians call grace. And the way we often remind ourselves at church of grace is through communion. And that's just a really old person, churchy word to say, eating bread and drinking juice. Not actually. The real definition is like an exchange on something like intimately, spiritual or mentally. And so when we look, when we look at those torn up pieces of bread, what we're actually remembering is that Jesus Christ's flesh was being torn apart as he was being beaten beyond recognition. We look at the grape juice, or sometimes it's even wine, and we look at the blood that he poured out on the ground. The reason why Jesus can actually claim to satisfy you is because he's the God that is the source of life. And when he came as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he emptied himself by becoming a man and bleeding out on the dirt for me and for you. He emptied himself so that you could be satisfied. Even some of his last words as he's bleeding out, he's dying. And this is what he says. He says, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. John wrote about this so that you would believe it. Like the whole purpose of this whole passage is actually a witness to you so that you can look at it and say, I want that. I believe in that. This is what it all kind of boils down to, you guys. This is, this is the big illustration. Imagine this. You get a text from a friend and they say, hey man, like happy five month anniversary. I bought you a gift on Amazon and it's on the way to your house. And so you wait a couple days, because your friend's awesome and he has Amazon Prime. And you wait a couple days. You know, sometimes it's only one day shipping. It's awesome. You wait, and the gift arrives at your door, okay? What's the only thing you actually need to do to get that gift? There's one thing you need to do. And you need to open the door, and you need to take the gift. That's all you need to do, right? It's already at your door. It's already been paid for. And the offer that Jesus is making you tonight is actually really similar. He's already done all the hard work. 
He paid the price for this bread, this gift, this eternal life. And all you need to do is open your hand and eat it. This is what satisfaction is, guys. Satisfaction is to look upon a God who is completely satisfied and fulfilled and he chose to die for you so that you might be too. To empty himself so that you can be full because his food satisfies because it never perishes. Right, like what did Jesus do after he died on a cross? Three days later, he came back to life. This is how John Piper puts it. God, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Let's pray. Father, I'm, uh, I'm tired. I'm sick of the ways that I look for life and for meaning in this world. And I hate the way that my sin clings to me so closely and it makes me desire things that you wouldn't desire for me. God, would we be humble and would we take these words not like how the Jews do and say this is a hard saying, who can believe it? But could we say, man, I actually want to believe this. God, would you fill us because we're empty. We're empty without you and we have nothing to strive for, nothing to live for unless you come and you change our hearts and you change the ways that we live fundamentally because you've adopted us as children and you've made us people that are born again in your grace and in your righteousness. So would we just raise our hands in worship and proclaim that truth that you're beautiful and the consumption that we have in you is not a crazy thing, but it's just something that changes lives and we see it so many times here and God, we just want to keep seeing it. Would your will be done here as it is in heaven?